Uh, a man called uh, Jerome, who was uh, around a similar time to, to Chris Austin, I guess, uh, wrote a letter once to a young church leader. And in this letter, Jerome expressed his anger towards the church uh, because there was hypocrisy and they showed more concern for the appearance of their building than the careful selection of their leaders. And this is what Jerome wrote. Many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittered with gold, their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. The churches has prioritized appearances above faithful preaching and leading. And the strict guidelines set out by Paul to a, to a young church had been cast aside. Last week, uh, we began to look at what is one of two lists in the scriptures, uh, which contain the specific qualifications that we must look for in our elders. Uh, we saw that an elder is to be one that is above reproach. He's not to have a hint of controversy or scandal about him. And we saw that it wasn't just about his attitude in the church, but that his home life must be honourable and healthy. He must be a, a one-woman man and someone who commands the respect of his children. And then the list went on to describe what the elder must not be, some characteristics that we should not see in the life of an elder. And uh, if you look again at that list, uh, it says he should not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. A pastor cannot uh, be a, a faithful and fruitful shepherd of Christ's sheep if these are true of him. And it's challenging, isn't it, and sobering for us to read such a specific and strict list, especially as, as elders. But doesn't it bring us comfort that the care God has for his church looks like this? He won't just let anyone take care of his people. No, there are strict parameters ensuring that his sheep are cared for with the utmost care. Now there's a high sense of suspicion towards authority and leadership in today's culture. And some of this comes from the fact that uh, political leaders and CEOs and uh, many high-profile figures and sadly church leaders too have made the headlines for all the wrong reasons as they've abused their power. But there's another aspect of that as well. Human nature means that we are suspicious and we, we disregard authority because we don't like being told what to do. Uh, we believe that there are some things that people shouldn't talk about and uh, we shouldn't preach about in our, in our own lives. So there's this tension. Yes, uh, some of it is healthy uh, because some uh, leaders have abused their position, but the Bible tells us that God puts leaders in place for our good and for his glory. So there's this tension uh, when we're told to submit to elders. We find it difficult, don't we? Um, but thankfully, if, if Titus and consequently us as believers today hold our elders to this level of scrutiny, then with God's grace and help, 
we will be protecting the church from harm and we will be creating the best possible environment for the church to thrive and to grow here in the Swansea Valley. So let's pick up where we left last week and consider what a church leader should be. Uh, The first um, things that we looked at last week were the negatives, so this week I want to look at the positives. And the, the first thing he mentions is that he wants them to be hospitable. There in verse 8, I want them to be hospitable. Hospitality is important in the Bible. Uh, Crete, like much of the Mediterranean in those days, uh, and probably today, they put a strong emphasis on hospitality. Uh, Hospitality was so important in ancient Greece that it actually became written into law, how you were supposed to treat certain people and what the expectations were if someone was to come to your house. And we're not going to do that today. Um, but it's clear that in this time that Paul was writing, uh, the, the people were encouraged to be uh, hospitable. Uh, the Greeks uh, were encouraged to hold lavish feasts. They were uh, never sure, according to uh, some writers, if they were being visited by a god in human form. So in, a, in, a, in this kind of society, which Paul is writing into, this was a, a world which prided itself on their hospitality. So Paul is saying a suitable elder in a church needs to be just as welcoming, welcoming, just as generous. Uh, And the difference being would be the Christian motivation behind the hospitality. Rather than it being a showcase for your gifts and your talents and your amazing culinary skills, rather than it being a competition and rather than it being a way to impress any uh, deities in disguise, Christian hospitality is a picture of God's wonderful generosity and grace. And it's not just about the way that we treat our friends and our family. Of course, uh, we're supposed to be hospitable towards people that we know and that we love. But the elder is someone who is to show love to those he doesn't know and to those who are difficult. And I think it's helpful for us to consider the word Paul uses for hospitality. The, the Greek word he uses is philo xenos. A philo, which is the Greek word for love. Uh, we get the word philanthropy, someone who loves to, to give money away. Or philosophy, someone who loves thought and thinking. So we've got philo, love. And then xenos is the same word we get the word xenophobic from. Someone who's xenophobic doesn't like strangers or outsiders or people that have come into the country. So someone who is philoxenos is someone who loves strangers, who loves outsiders. And that is what Paul is saying an elder ought to be. Someone who loves strangers, who goes out of their way in order to accommodate those who are on the fringes, those who have been rejected by others, those who don't feel at home anywhere. The faithful elder will be the one that says, come in. You're welcome here. And that is not just a new thing in the New Testament. That's not just a new thing in Paul's letters. No, throughout the Bible, that's how God operates. If you read uh, Leviticus 19, uh, God says to the people of Israel, when a foreigner resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the foreigner who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. 
for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God makes it clear that his people ought to show graciousness and kindness to those that enter into this new society. And we see something of God's character there. God is the one who cares for and feeds his people. We see that in Psalm 23. If you think of Psalm 23, there's, there's two real images that are being used there. Uh, the, the first few verses are, are all about uh, a shepherd, aren't they? The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, but as you go on, uh, the psalmist does something that we're, we're told not to do in our English literature classes. He mixes his metaphors. But because it's uh, David writing and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think we'll let him off because it's so wonderful. And he moves from being a shepherd to moving on to talking about a host. And this is what uh, Psalm 23 says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we have a God who lavishly treats his guests and welcomes them in with affection. And this isn't just about inviting others into our homes, but it's all about the way that we interact with other people. And it could even be the other way around, whose houses we're willing to go to. Uh, By accepting an invitation to go to someone's home, you are showing grace and favour. Think of uh, the book of Acts. At the end of chapter 9, we read these words. Peter stayed in Joppa for a time with a tanner named Simon. You read a sentence like that and you think, why? Why has the Bible told us that? Why, why is that significant? Well, here's the significance. A tanner was someone who uh, prepared animal skins uh, in order to sell them so that they could use them for, for blankets and for, uh, for rugs, I guess, and things like that, uh, and to make uh, bottles with. Uh, a tanner was constantly dealing with dead animals. And what weren't Jews allowed to come into contact with? Dead animals. And so uh, this occupation that uh, Simon the Tanner had was, was one that was treated with disdain by the Jewish people. Uh, Simon's house would have reeked of blood and guts. Anyone uh, entering in would have, would have felt uh, unclean and would have been unclean. They wouldn't have been allowed to go into the temple. But by choosing to stay here, Peter was making a statement about God. This is what God is like. He transcends the old ceremonial laws now and he uh, is going to go in and he is going to make his home there and we see this best don't we in the life of Jesus of course there are so many occasions in the gospels where Jesus goes above and beyond to show love towards those in society who are on the outside think of how he dines with Zacchaeus and he invites himself to his house and says I'm coming to your house for tea Zacchaeus was a was a tax collector That's the equivalent of of something far worse than being a a traffic warden today. This was, was, uh, imagine a traffic warden and an estate agent put together, but even worse. And this this was someone who was really on the outer limits of society. People hated him because he had had sided with the Romans and made money off his own people. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house for tea. Or think of how he makes a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Or think of uh, how he heals the leper with a touch. 
Or think of an even more personal example, maybe. In your own lives, thinking of how a holy God came to save sinners like you and me. We can see this when we read Colossians, and it says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, when Jesus intervened in our lives, we weren't these lovable rascals with a few sins to our names that just needed a bit of straightening out. No, we were alienated and hostile in mind, it says, doing evil deeds. We were enemies of God. And yet, it was while we were enemies of God that he died for us. So remember this when we're thinking about hospitality. Remember the lengths Christ's hospitality went to. On the night he was betrayed, remember how he comforted his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Get a drink. You know when someone's coming to your house and you're nervous about what they're going to see and what they're you're trying to put everything in cupboards and trying to sort it all out? You're preparing for someone to come in, aren't you? And we were talking a bit about that on Wednesday night, weren't we? Well, Jesus is preparing a place for us. He is getting us uh, the place ready for us to come into. What a special thought that is. Do you grasp that, that we have an ultimate host and so that is what the elders are emulating. That's what the elders are following. This, this sort of hospitality, this gracious love that we've been shown throughout Scripture, that is what we are to look for in the life of an elder. Second of all, um, what do we see there in, in the second part of verse 8? Uh, an elder is to be a lover of good. That's the second thing he mentions. And when he marries someone... Uh, you begin to, to love the things that they love. Uh, the things that, that make them happy are the things that make you happy. Uh, the things that annoy you uh, will be the things that annoy them. And the things that make you sad are the things that make them sad. I had a text on, on uh, mid-morning on Friday afternoon. Uh, mid-morning, on, not Friday afternoon, mid-morning on Friday. Just Cat was asking me, are you Okay. And I knew straight away it's because Jurgen Klopp had announced that he was leaving Liverpool. <laughs> and Kat knew I was going to be very sad and difficult to talk to on that day. And the things that I get sad about now, Kat gets sad about. Um, and it's, it should be like that for a, for a Christian. And it should be like that, especially with an elder, with their relationship with God. When we become Christians, our old desires will be replaced. A faithful and effective elder is someone who loves what God loves, who loves what is good. They ought to hate the things that God hates and love the things God loves. We know from God's word what God hates. This is what it says in the book of Proverbs. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil, 
a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among brothers. So a faithful elder ought to be someone who hates these things too. There is not a hint of evil or deception or darkness in God. And we are to, to read the scriptures to find out what God hates and where to hate it too. So what does God love? How are we to find out what God loves? Well, the Bible is similarly clear about what God loves. In Psalm 33, it says this, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Therefore, if we are to be like God, if we want to serve him effectively, then we ought to reflect this. Elders ought to be studying God's word daily to find out what he loves, what he hates. Uh, the godly pastor or elder ought to be the one who loves what God loves. Does he do what God, uh, does he do good because it's an obligation, because it's in the job description, because it's what he gets paid for? Does he do it because people will think highly of him? These would all be wrong motivations, wouldn't they, to do these things? Uh, a Christian ought to love what God loves because he longs to please God and longs to make God happy and longs uh, to do what is right. In Proverbs 21 it says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. So does seeing justice fill the elder with joy? Does he do these things because it pleases the Lord? May our church be led by those who delight in the Lord, who fear him and love the same things as God does. Uh, thirdly, what else do we see on that list? Uh, a, a pastor, an elder, should be self-controlled. Um, some versions have it as sensible or reasonable. Now, a quality like that is, is seen as boring in today's age. We often prioritise someone's dynamism, don't we? Uh, their ability to entertain, are they impressive? Would our friends be, be wowed if they, if they were introduced to, to our elder, our pastor? If they were to come to church, would they be like, wow, he's so entertaining? These things aren't inherently sinful or wrong, but it's not Paul's priority. He, he wants someone sensible. That is what Titus was told would be effective in leading the church. His priority is to look for someone sober-minded, self-controlled and reasonable. Why is that the case? Well, there are all manners of situations that an elder will get into that will cause him to feel all sorts of pressure. An elder deals with life and death situations, uh, weddings and funerals, the joy of births and the sorrows of infertility, uh, marriage counselling, mental health issues, financial struggles, uh, people facing doubts, all sorts of complex ethical issues. And the elder has to speak truth into these difficult situations. He may face personal slander and people shunning him and, and uh, telling him that he's no good. He may have to enter into heated debates in order to defend the gospel. He has to make uh, the biblical case for morality in the world which is increasingly hostile towards that. So in all these situations, what you don't want is a, is a maverick, uh, a loose cannon going into these different situations. You want someone level-headed, don't you? Someone who carefully and quietly, and most importantly, faithfully goes about their business. Not what would be quickest or easiest, and not would make, what would make him look best, but someone who has prayerfully considered 
what outcome would be most pleasing to the Lord. And then you've got these uh, last three things that uh, Titus is to look for. To be upright, holy and disciplined. And these three things, uh, how does he act with others? How does he act with God? And how does he act with himself? Those are the, the three ways. So upright or righteous in some versions. Uh, how does he act with others? Are they just? Do they do things with fairness? How does the elder act towards other people? And uh, the qualification is, is that he is righteous. So we cannot be content with someone who is a good egg. Someone who's a, a really nice guy. Someone who tries his best. Once again, those three things aren't, aren't bad things. But they are not up to the mark that we're looking for here. Our requirement is someone who has been completely transformed by the righteousness of Christ. Uh, in Philippians 3, uh, Paul describes how he realized he wasn't good enough for God. This is what he said. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So the righteous elder is not someone who does things in his own strength, but someone who sees the worthlessness of living without Christ and by faith and faith alone lives in order to please him. And through the Spirit he is able to do so. If an elder is relying on his own righteousness, then he is doomed for failure. But if it is done in faith, then we can expect great things. With faith comes action. The transformation of the righteous man starts on the inside, but is lived on the outside. When we read the book of James, we see that. Uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what we should be seeing in the lives of elders. This is what we should see in the lives of all Christians, those who are overflowing with Christ's righteousness so that it might flow into the lives of others and be experienced by them. So that's... Um, how he deals with others. The, se the second one of this of the last three is how he deals with God. Uh, the, the requirement is that he's holy. Now this, of course, runs in tandem with everything else in this list. If he is not holy, then it's like a, a house of cards. I've never been able to build those house of cards. I don't have the patience for it. But if you take the bottom uh, one away, then it will all fall apart, won't it? And if we're not holy... Uh, if he is not set apart by God, if he has not been made holy by God and through God, uh, if he's not in communion with God through the, the prayer and the reading of his word, uh, then he will not be able to, to live out these things that Paul has set out as a requirement. Um, he must be someone who, who cares about doing good, who cares about the things of God. Uh, those who are, are so different to the world that the rest of the world inquires. They ask, where does he get his joy from? Where does he get his contentment from? Where does he get his confidence and his hope? 
Well, it's not from inside. It must be from something else. It's Christ's joy. It's Christ's contentment. It's Christ's confidence and Christ's hope. That is what the holy man will be like. And finally, how does he deal with himself? Uh, We've seen how he deals with others and how he deals with God, but how does he deal with himself? The last thing is that he is disciplined. There are many people out there who are gifted teachers and uh, they're very charismatic and and gifted and and kind and they're passionate, but they have no self-control and no discipline. And it's important that we we note this requirement at the end of the list. Uh, The role of an elder is not the only place where we see the need for discipline and self-control. It's the same in many other lines of work. Um, Sorry to return to football, but um, uh, there was a player called Ravel Morrison, uh, who um, legendary uh, Manchester United manager Alex Ferguson said was the most gifted player for his age I had ever seen. And he made his first appearance for Man United at 17. And uh, he was destined for greatness. Um, but that was 13 years ago. And uh, he's, he's never made the grade anyways. He's played in Mexico and Holland and Sweden and uh, America and the US. But he never stays anywhere for longer than a year because he never fulfills the potential he's shown. He lacks discipline. He's not training hard enough. He gets uh, caught in the wrong crowds. He has trouble with the police. Lots of, of talent that he was given was wasted because he lacked self-control and discipline. And all Christians and elders are called to have even more discipline than this. And you're right to think that we're saved by grace and grace alone. No one has been saved because of their brilliant self-control. It's through Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness that we are saved. But when we are saved, we are to earnestly seek to live for Christ, which means saying no to the pleasures of this world, to fight sin. Uh, Jerry Bridges uh, was a a faithful pastor. You may have um, seen his books uh, around. Uh, He died a few years ago, but uh, a number of them talk about Christian living and living holy lives through the power of the Spirit. And this is what he says in a book um, called The Discipline of Grace. The pursuit of holiness requires sustained and vigorous effort. It allows for no indolence, no lethargy, no half-hearted commitment towards even the smaller sins. In short, it demands the highest priority in the life of a Christian. Because to be holy is to be like Christ, God's goal for every Christian. So he's saying that we don't let go and let God. No, the Christian life requires discipline. And the life of the pastor is the same. It ought to show rigid commitment. Paul says to Timothy, doesn't he, uh, train yourself for godliness. Uh, Bodily training is of some use, but godliness is of value in every way. Uh, There are a number of times where uh, the New Testament compares uh, the Christian life to that of an athlete. And uh, you can see why. Uh, When we read of those which rise to the very top of their craft in in sport, uh, you see that they care about the way they sleep and what they eat and how they analyse their performance. They record and schedule every run they do. They make plenty of sacrifices. Uh, They... 
uh, have a good support network. They surround themselves with good trainers and good managers. They rest well. But if a successful athlete is to go to all these lengths to achieve something, then how much more should an elder be doing in order to be closer to God? A godly, disciplined Christian and, and therefore a godly, disciplined elder is to be someone who studies right and prays and rests in Christ, who regularly meets with other believers, who ensures they're surrounded by good influences, uh, who is uh, careful with what they consume. Every Christian here this morning will face trials, temptations and difficulties. And the devil loves putting those things in your way. And he particularly likes doing it to to elders, to church leaders. He loves uh, making someone who is in ministry fall. And there's a reason Jesus said, if anyone would come to me, let him first take up his cross. Let him deny himself before following me. We all need to be on guard. Jesus said, didn't he, on the night he was betrayed, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have been redeemed by the saving blood of the cross, but we're still in a battle, aren't we? But we must never feel defeated before the battle has been faced. We've been set free from the power of sin. At the cross. Remember what Paul says No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So these are the things that we must see in the lives of church leaders here in Bethel and elsewhere. So, what can you do? What can we all do? Uh, for application. Well, pray for your elders. That was one of my applications last week. And I'm going to say it again because there will never be a week where that is not a relevant application point. Pray for us that we might grow to be more and more like Christ. Pray that we would be above reproach, that we would be hospitable, that we would love to do good, that we would be self-controlled, upright and holy and disciplined. An elder is like every other Christian who has ever lived in that they need prayer. How does Paul finish his letter to the Thessalonians? Uh, The first one. He says, uh, brothers and sisters, pray for us. So someone who had physically met with the Lord Jesus, who had pioneered the missionary movement, who wrote most of the New Testament, who was a pillar in most churches in in Europe in those days. If he needs prayer, then we certainly do. So pray for us and pray for one another. Um, second application for, for us as a church this morning is, is to look at the other men in the church. Uh, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Our hope is that uh, thus the four elders of this church will be here for the foreseeable future. But circumstances, health, age uh, may mean that we, we may not be here. So are there men in Bethel that aspire to be elders? Paul says to Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an elder desires a noble task. So let's pray that God would raise up other men that we would consider to help the work here. And lastly, these are all qualities that should be true of us as Christians. My hope is that over the last two weeks you haven't switched off because it's up to the elders to live like this and it's, and it's not up to me. No, it's God's great desire to see every single one of us live like this, 
to be holy and righteous and faithful and self-controlled. These are the, the spiritual fruit that we should see in the life of every believer. But we need to see more of Jesus for this to happen. Uh, so the final song that we're going to sing this morning is, is, is going to be uh, to be asking to see more of Jesus. More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. 